Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to study about you, to turn our hearts and minds to the, the source of all goodness. We pray that you will join us here this morning, that uh, our lives will reflect your, your kingdom and your principles, and that we will draw close to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And uh, Christy and I are only about six weeks away from our trip back to Germany, where we're going to be doing some more public programs, and they're going to be different than the ones we did last time. I'll put up an announcement about those uh, shortly. But to our friends in Germany, I want to say something this week. Unser Freunde in Deutschland, wir vermissen dich bald zu sehen. Which means uh, we're missing you guys and we're going to see you soon. <laughs> Today we're doing lesson number two in our quarterly, Garments of Grace, Clothing Imagery in the Bible. And the lesson title this week is From Exalted to Cast Down. Somebody read the memory text for us there, which is Ezekiel 28.15. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. And then in the first paragraph, it says, Today's memory text has to be one of the most profound in all revelation. Two crucial words stand out, perfect and iniquity with the latter iniquity encapsulated by the former perfect. What this means is that contained in the idea of being perfect, of having perfection, even in heaven, is the potential for iniquity. How could iniquity be found in a being created perfect unless perfection allowed for it? Iniquity could not arise in a being created perfect unless being perfect included the possibility of it, which it obviously did. Is anyone bothered by that thought? that the idea of being perfect contains within it the possibility of iniquity. Any, any, any thoughts? Anybody want to question that? Uh, how does it bother you if it bothers you? Does this tell us anything about God? This idea that imperfection was the possibility of iniquity, does that inform us about God in any way? Yes? That we're, that we're free, that there's freedom to follow or reject what we have. You see, I, I love this, because if you actually think about it, Lucifer's very rebellion, his act of alleging God's totalitarianism, his working to undermine God's government, this very behavior itself was evidence that Lucifer was actually lying, because if God was like Lucifer said, Lucifer could have never rebelled. God would have held him in line. God would have used his power to, to you know, put the thumbs on. Look what's happening in Libya right now. When people try to rebel in Libya, what, what's Gaddafi doing? He's trying to kill and destroy and, and, and crush everyone who tries to rebel. You see that God gave space and gave freedom for Lucifer to carry on, which shows a different methodology. Monday's lesson, we talk about Lucifer. And... We're going to jump to Monday. We'll come back to Sunday. Monday's lesson, a beautiful and perfect being, Lucifer. And Lucifer is a Latin word which means morning star or bearer of light or bright shining light or the light bearer. It refers to the heavenly body Venus, which is the bright morning star. And in scripture is used to refer to both Satan and Christ. Lucifer, both Satan and Christ. Uh, why do you think scripture gives a common name to both Satan and Christ. Because it means light. Because it means light, she says. Any other ideas or thoughts on that? Yes. Both as the central characters to the throne were those beings that emanated what God had for the universe as far as light. So both of them served for, as, as conduits, if you will, uh, of sharing truth about God. Uh, this quarter's lesson is on clothing imagery. Why are we discussing Lucifer in this context? And I guess the question is, what do we learn? What do we learn? What lesson do we learn from Lucifer's clothing? So let's, let's read about Lucifer's clothing. Ezekiel 28, 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every, no, think about his clothing. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold, on the day you were created, they were prepared. What do you think about his clothing? Any, any thoughts come to mind? Does it, did it trigger anything in your, in your bif- biblical uh, compendium? Priesthood. 
Ah, the high priest, yes. So we find this in Exodus chapter 39, starting verse 8. They fashioned the breastplate, the work of skilled craftsmen. They made it like an ephod of gold. They mounted four rows of precious stones on it. There were ruby and topaz and beryl and turquoise and sapphire and emerald and uh, agate and amethyst and chrysolite and onyx and jasper. Do we see a real similarity? We've got a name, Lucifer, for Christ and for Satan. Who is the high priest? Who is our heavenly high priest? Jesus. And we have the high priest breastplates uh, having a similar adornment as we hear about Lucifer's clothing. Do you see a parallel or, or a similarity here? What do you think it means? Any lesson in this? You know, just on your question earlier, I was thinking, you know, why did God, why did Jesus and Satan look similar? You know, it's kind of interesting how, you know, his character is, he, he kind of lowers himself to the lowest kind of common denominator where maybe the angels were at that time. So Lucifer wasn't sure if he was an angel or God, perhaps. He was a little confused, or at least he wished he was. And now, Jesus takes on the form of man. You know, I like this idea very much about, you know, God is infinite. It says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that he lives in unapproachable light. No finite being can approach the infinite God. But God loves his creatures, and he wants to be intimate with them. So if we can't approach him, what does he do? And how does he approach us? Through Christ. Christ is the go-between, the mediator, the, the conduit, the envoy, the ambassador, the member of the Godhead who steps down to reach his creation close so they can in, in, interact face-to-face. So I think you're exactly right. Prior to his incarnation as man, he was manifesting himself as an angel. Um, this is, I found this description out of, the, out of a book called The Story of Redemption, uh, page 13. It says, Lucifer in heaven before his rebellion was high and exalted angel next in honor to God's dear son. His countenance, like those of other angels, was mild and expressive of happiness. His forehead was high and broad, showing a powerful intellect. His form was perfect, his bearing noble and majestic. A special light beamed in his countenance and shone around him brighter and more beautiful than around other angels. Yet, Christ, God's dear son, had the preeminence over all the angelic host. He was one with the Father before the angels were created. So, if you're putting the pieces together here, these descriptions, what is Lucifer wearing? What clothing? What's what's his adornments? Oh, he's wearing jewels. Now, do you think these are like little tiny things that you stick on a, you know, and, and made from earth with the, and we've got to put them on our, and get little defects and things that you, or do you think these heavenly jewels are like magnificent? Perfect. Now, what happens when you shine light through a gemstone? If you take a light, a powerful light, and shine it through a gemstone, what happens? Oh, fantastic. So, so what are we reading here? A special light beamed in his countenance and shone around him brighter and more beautiful than the other angels. Yet he's wearing what? All these gemstones. So you get this kind of image in your mind of Lucifer in heaven as he's singing, as he's praising, as he's speaking, that beams of light are radiating out through these gemstones he's wearing and this phenomenal panoply of colors and rainbows and, and different things are, are, are going forth from him. Imagine the brilliance. Or am I stretching it too much? If he's a being of light, are angels beings of light? Every time we see an angel show up in Scripture, how are they, how are they described? Yeah, with fire, light, and lightning, and like this. And he's wearing these jewels, what would you expect to happen? I think it would be phenomenal. I, I, I'm waiting to get there. I think we're going to have some pretty cool things to see. What do you think? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I thought about that. I'm not sure what the exact lesson there is. Um, I just thought it would be kind of fun to imagine what it looks like. But any, any ideas on what the lesson there might be? My thought when I was reading about that was that the beautiful covering that he had on was supposed to be, I mean, it was, the idea of it is to reflect all the beauty that was in his mind. You know, he was created right, and his mind was right until he fell. And, and all that beautiful covering would, would be reflective of that. Oh, I like that too. I like that too, especially coming from God's presence. Um, his mind was to reflect more and more of the Creator. Yeah, I think that's, that's great because truth and light, metaphorically, work together. 
Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, our God is the creator. John 1, 1 through 3 makes it clear that anything that was created, that is, anything that once didn't exist but then existed, did so only through the actions of the Lord. And the question I have is, which member of the Godhead was the member through which creation actually occurred? Jesus, I hear you saying it. Jesus, was it Jesus? Well, John 1, 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? Christ. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, Christ, all things were created, things in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the question, uh, I think Scripture makes it very clear, unequivocal, that Jesus is a member of the Godhead through which creation actually occurred. Why? Was there any special reason? Was it just random? Did they, did they roll the dice, the Father, Son, and Spirit? Did they flip a coin? Uh, or was there an actual understood reason that Jesus needed to be the member? Because all of, any of them could have done it. The Spirit, Father could have done it. Was there a reason that Jesus was the member through which it was created? Thoughts about that? Yes, he did. Is there a reason, though, that he was the one and not the Spirit or the Father who did it? The Spirit could have done it. The Father could have done it, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a reason that the Son is the one through which it happened. Yes? He was the one intended to save us. He was the one intended to save us. That's the next question. Is there a reason why he was the one who came to save us? It's all, it's all connected. Yes? He was the one who had been interacting with the angels. He is the one who'd been interacting with the angels. So what does that lead us to? With whom had Satan alleged equality? Did Satan allege equality with the Holy Spirit? Did Satan allege equality with the Father? Did Satan allege equality with Christ? So if Satan alleges equality with Christ, does that make sense to you that if Christ is the one who is going to create, it demonstrates, not declare simply, but actually gives evidence, hey, there's a distinction. I'm a creator. He's not a creator. Okay? So Christ creates as the member to give evidence because God doesn't say, hey, uh, the Bible said it. Uh, you better believe it because I said so. No, God provides evidence upon which to bathe our faith. So Christ begins creating. We go, oh, I can see there is a significant difference here that maybe wasn't apparent from the, from the get-go, but now I can see there is a significant difference. He's got creative power. You don't, Lucifer. So listen to this. This is out of um, Patriarchs and Prophets 35. Little by little, uh, Lucifer came to indulge the desire for self-exaltation. And the scripture says, this is out of our lesson for this week, Ezekiel 28, 17. Thine heart was lifted up because of thine beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. And out of Isaiah 14, thou hast said in thine heart, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the most high. Though all his glory was from God, this mighty angel came to regard it as pertaining to himself. Not content with his position, Though honored above the heavenly host, he ventured to covet homage due only to the creator. Which member of the Godhead was doing this creation? Christ. Instead of seeking to make God supreme in his affections and allegiance of all created beings, it was his endeavor to secure their service and loyalty to himself. Now notice these words. And coveting the glory which the infinite father had invested in his son, the prince of angels aspired to power that was the prerogative of Christ alone. See, it was Christ's position he envied. It was Christ he wanted to overthrow. It was Christ he alleged equality with. And then Patriarchs and Prophets, page 36, to dispute the supremacy of the Son of God, thus impeaching the wisdom of the, and love of the Creator, had become the purpose of this Prince of Angels. To this obje- object, he was about to bend his energies of that mastermind, which next to Christ was first among the hosts of God. Do you notice the subtlety here? Yes. Satan vanished from heaven, or was Satan was Satan confined here to the earth, or whatever the word is, before creation or after? What do you all think? Wendell? On Friday's lesson, the statement from Mrs. White says, he will not be banished to the earth until the second coming of Christ. But he was sent down. Christ said, now is the time um, for judgment. I, if I be lifted up, will draw on to me, and the prince shall be cast out. 
or cast down. She says in other places in Revelation that she saw um, regarding Revelation where um, the dragon was cast out to the earth and his followers with him, that that happened at the time of the crucifixion. Yes. So was the evidence of creation, the evidence of the son being the creator of God, having that creation power, was that available to Satan and the angels before... My understanding is that actually the rebellion began in heaven first, and then creation of earth happened second. Earth happened, uh, God, uh, God the Father, Son, and Spirit went about to create earth after the rebellion was already going in heaven. Going, but not resolved. I mean, not... No, it's not, not resolved yet. But, the, but what I mean is <laughs> right. the division of Satan, where it says that, you know... He was no longer allowed him. My personal belief is that he was cast out to earth first. Why would God not have given him that same evidence? Because I, he, he, casted, he cast Lucifer to the earth for the purpose of giving Lucifer the first go. Just like on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal got the first go. But didn't he then? And he said, Lucifer, you're claiming equality with Christ. You won't submit. If you read the whole accounts, Lucifer knew he was in the wrong. He was already convicted he was in the wrong. He was convicted and he needed to repent. And all that was required uh, was repentance and submission, and he had been restored. But his pride wouldn't allow him. So I think an attempt to redeem him, to show him his own um, impotence in this regard, God sent him and his angels to earth, and earth at that point in, in uh, universal history, my personal belief, was a black hole in space in the corner of the Milky Way. It was dark and void, a deep abyss, where light couldn't even exchange. There was no light coming out of it. I think it was a little black hole deep in space. Uh, the Milky Way and the universe had already been created sometime before. It tells us in Job chapter 38 that the sons of God sang together when the foundations of the earth were laid. Uh, you put all the pieces together, this can answer the questions why in Genesis 1, he says, let there be light, because he dissipates a black hole and the light of space is traveling. And, Gen- and then um, in the fourth day of creation, he creates the sun, moon, and stars, the stars of the solar system, Mercury, Mercury and, and Mars uh, and Venus. Um, so we can put the pieces together and understand that the universe can be billions of years old, yet the earth was made six to 10,000 years ago. And it explains why the, the geological um, radioactive, car, uh, radio, not carbon dating, but radioactive, other radioactive isotope dating goes billions of years old because the mass in the center, at the center of the black hole had been here for billions of years when God first created the universe and then came over to this corner of the Milky Way to, to actually um, terraform planet Earth. So I think he sent, I think he purposely sent Lucifer and his angels to a little dark space place. It's a metaphor. You're, you're, this is what this is what will happen, a darkness, okay? But you've claimed equality with Christ. Show us what you can do. We'll let you go first. Show us what you can do. And he couldn't do anything. And then they have front row seats, front row, when Christ comes and says, let there be light, and begins terraforming and changing and transforming. But he wasn't restricted, even though he's sent here, he wasn't restricted here, because we see in the book of Job, that he was able to go up and claim his representative status of earth. And, of course, he was challenged. No, no one, no one everyone recognizes you. And um, his restriction didn't happen until the cross. And what restricted him? Did God now put a uh, force field around planet earth? And he goes like, <laughs> can't get out? No. What restricted him was that at the cross, all doubt about God had been removed from all the intelligences in the rest of the universe. And so... Basically, all the other intelligences, when Satan tries to present a distortion or a lie, they go, talk to the hand. I'm not listening to you. You're a liar and a fraud. I see you for what you are. So he's cast out of their hearts and minds. So he's restricted here because only here does he have people who still listen to him. This is where he can work. So that's how I understand all those things. Yes? But he is still the accuser of the brethren. Yes. And so he can still travel and make havoc, etc., in, in the heavenly courts. And accuse us before the Heavenly Father. Can he? Yes. I don't think he can. I think his accusations happen here. I think he accuses us in our own minds. And he gets us to doubt and gets us to create this imagery of him up there in in this courtroom scene and all this going on. I don't think the Father has... I think the Father listens to him just like he did. We have examples of this. When Christ came to to resurrect Moses, where he was on earth, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not having a conversation with you. (laughs) We're not going to discuss this. Okay, you have nothing I want to hear. I don't think he. I don't think they listen to him. I don't think he has words that anybody listens to anymore. He's exposed as a fraud and a liar, and everyone knows it. 
And I think the issue now is simply which ones of us will allow, will allow ourselves to be healed by him and reconciled back to him. But I, I think the accusations still go on. He is the accuser, but where does he accuse? Where, where does he get traction for those accusations? In our minds. I don't think, it's, I don't think he gets any traction in heaven. Then the purpose of post-cross Christianity is also a purpose of healing. That's exactly right. But also a demonstration to the universe of what restoration is. Because I think the angels are going to have some questions. And in fact, Christ said, you will do greater things than I've done. Remember, he said this to his apostles, you will do greater things than I've done. Think that through, guys. Think about that. What can we do greater than him? We think, I mean, can we heal more than he healed? Can we show, can, can, I mean, can we live a more perfect life than he lived? No, the one thing that we can do greater than him, there's one thing that I can think of we can do greater than he did. And we can experience greater healing of a defective and deformed character than he, healed, than he experienced. See, he didn't have a defective and deformed character. And what we get to show is what you're talking about right here. See, Christ's life on earth demonstrated what a perfect human life from birth all the way through the cross and death looks like in the face of temptation and sin all around him without ever giving in a perfection of human existence lived out by Jesus Christ. That's what his life shows. What our life gets the privilege of showing is when we trust him is what a defective and deformed character can look like when God's Holy Spirit works and takes all Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. We get the privilege of demonstrating the greater level of restoration and healing. And we are the theater to angels and men. Right. So the angels are looking in to see this. And what it demonstrates is not that we work our way into heaven or that we do some great thing to heal ourselves, but the power of God's healing, the healing power of God working within us restores and transforms us. So we get the privilege of, of being worked upon, if you will, uh, through, the, through the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's move on. These are great questions. Because um, I, want, I want you to see this, 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 remember this parallel. We're looking at clothing here. Uh, Lucifer in heaven is wearing clothing that looks just like the high priest's clothing. Okay, so, uh, and Christ uh, was, uh, shared, shared a name. They both shared the name Lucifer. Uh, so the angelic host maybe look over and see some similarities. Lucifer comes to be jealous of Christ's position in heaven. Um, so how does God initially respond to Lucifer's allegations and his working of his mastermind to undermine confidence in Christ? How does God respond? Well, this is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 36. The king of the universe, now think, think this, or get your mind around this, you're perfect angels in heaven, no sin, no carnal natures, no, uh, no, no disease, uh, you've, never, you've never seen anything out of harmony with God before, and Lucifer starting to tell his lies, and Christ is there telling you, what does God do when, when this disruption occurs? The king of the universe summoned the heavenly host before him, that in their presence he might set forth the true position of his son and show the relation he sustained to all created beings. The son of God shared the father's throne and the glory of the eternal self-existent one encircled both. Before the assembled inhabitants of heaven, the king declared that none but Christ, the only begotten of God, could fully enter into his purposes and to him it was committed to execute the mighty counsels of his will. The Son of God had wrought the Father's will in the creation of all the hosts of heaven, and to him, as well as to God, their homage and allegiance were due. Now, did you hear what just happened? There's a big old meeting in heaven. All the angels are called forth. God makes an announcement. Now, question, why did God have to hold this meeting and make an announcement of the rightful position of the Son? Do we have to hold meetings and make announcements to people that the Son that's in our sky is bright or that fire is hot or that water is wet. Do we have to announce that to people? No. When things are patently and universally obvious, you don't have to make an announcement about it, do you? No. So the reason that this meeting was held and an announcement was made, I'm going to suggest to you, is because it wasn't obvious. Christ was that humble representative of God meeting his creatures on the level they existed. And he was so good at, at being a human when he came to earth that most people didn't recognize him as God, I'm going to suggest he was so good at being an angel that the angels didn't recognize him as God. And this is what Satan distorted and twisted. So, how did Satan, so God has a meeting. 
And he calls and he makes the announcement, hey, you know what? This God and Christ and I are equal. He's the, he's the, he's the creator. He's the one through, remember the Godhead through which you were, were, were brought into existence. Now, if you're Lucifer, how do you respond to this in heaven? Wow. Just big meeting. Big meeting, guys. I've just been, my whole little like scheme has just been like, you know, the, the sovereign one has just said I'm wrong to everybody. How do I deal with that? What did he do? Listen to this. Peter Prophets, page 37. Leaving the place in the immediate presence of God, this is right after the announcement, right after this meeting, Lucifer went forth to diffuse the spirit of discontent among the angels. He worked with mysterious secrecy. Now, let's talk about methodologies. When they came to arrest Christ and they asked him, what do you teach? Christ's response to the high priest was, ask anyone. I teach in the open. I do nothing in secret. Right? When you have the truth, you don't have to keep secrets, right? Satan works in secrecy and mystery and behind the scenes, okay? So, number one, he's, he's secretly doing things. Uh, for a time, he concealed his real purpose under the appearance of reverence for God. The exaltation of the Son of God as equal with the Father was represented as an injustice to Lucifer, who it was claimed was also entitled to reverence and honor. They both had those same shining breastplates with all this stuff of glory. They're both sitting there, uh, both one on the right and one on the left side of God. You know, I'm to do honor too. If this prince of angels could but attain his true exalted position, great good would accrue to the entire host of heaven. For it was his object to secure, notice this, it was his object to secure freedom for all. But now even the liberty which they had hitherto enjoyed was at an end for an absolute ruler had been appointed them, and to his authority all must pay homage. This is what, notice what, how Satan took the meeting. God announces, Christ is the creator. He sits on my throne with me. Your, um, your, your worship and adoration and love and affection are due him as well as to me. And Lucifer goes out and says, now we've got a ruler over us. Now we're no longer free, guys. We've got to answer to this guy. You know, he's going to be in control. If he says do it, we got to do it. We got this, uh, you know, we're a, de- we're a democracy here, right? Okay, do you see the, the twisting that he's doing? Question, was it true? Was it true that Christ was elevated to a position greater than Lucifer, placed as a ruler over the angels? True or false? False. No, he was. Christ was not elevated to a position. You notice how I said that. Was it true that Christ was elevated? No. Here's, this is a patriarch's prophecy 38. There had been no change in the position or authority of Christ. Lucifer's envy and misrepresentation and his claims to equality with Christ had made necessary a statement of the true position the son of, of the Son of God. But this had been the same from the beginning. Christ's position never changed. Never changed. He was not elevated. He was already he was already there. He's already creator. You follow me on this? But Satan made it appear that Christ had just been given an elevation. He hadn't been given an elevation. He was always the creator. And so you notice where Satan is working. He works in the mind with subtle little twists, subtle little distortions. Do we get an idea that's really not true? Okay, this is what he did to the angels. So does this give us insight? As I walk through this, this, this subtle twisting, does it give us insight as to why Jesus is the member of the Godhead through which everything was created? Yeah, because he really sets himself apart. Does it also give us insight as to why Jesus was the one who came to save us? Remember the allegation, we have a ruler over us, somebody you have to answer to. What did Christ show at the cross? What's the old adage in in, in earth? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is the allegation, we have a ruler over us. Why do you think in Revelation, every time we have that flash into heaven, the angels are singing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb to have the power. Why is he worthy to have the power? How did he use his power? John chapter 13, it says all power had been given to Christ. John chapter 13. And what did he immediately get up and do? Washed a bunch of dirty feet. That's how he uses his power. At the cross, did he still have power at the cross? Was it still accessible to him? Or was he powerless and helpless like the thieves? And what do we learn about the all-powerful one is that even when his creatures are abusing him, he would rather let us kill him than use his power to stop us. 
can you trust him with the power? See, who in this room, if they had that kind of power, would have restrained themselves from using it when a bunch of thugs were treating you that way? You see, we're not safe with that power. Aren't you glad I don't have that power? (laughs) Yes, this is it. So this is why Christ has the power. So this is, again, the reason Christ had to come. It also refutes this allegation. We have an absolute ruler over us. No, we don't. We have a loving, gracious, compassionate friend who dispenses his power for our health and good constantly. Thursday's lesson, jump to Thursday, Thursday's lesson, middle paragraph, it says, fortunately, because of the cross, because of what Jesus completed for us there, we know how it will turn out in the end. Victory is assured for all who are covered in the robes of Christ's perfection. Hence, Satan works diligently to try and keep as many as possible from finding the saving righteousness that guarantees them a place in eternity. Finding saving righteousness. Um, How? Question. What methods does Satan use? to keep us from finding the saving righteousness. His lies about God. Let's work this out. Um, What happens in the heart and mind of a person who believes lies about God? They don't trust him. him, And if they don't trust him, then what? They won't let him work in their life. They won't let him work in their life. But if you don't trust God, what other things start stirring up in your heart? Fear. Fear. And and what, what what does fear lead us to do? How do we live if we live in fear? Self-protection mode means we'll hurt others to protect self mode. This is what happens. Now, what happens then in the the heart of mind of a person, which is all of us born in in sin, conceived in iniquity, where fear is ruling at some point in our life and we're insecure and we're watching out for self. What happens in the heart and mind of that person if the love of Jesus comes in and takes over? Fear's gone. Fear's gone. We, We get changed. Now, how would you describe that person, somebody who has believed lies about God, who has lived in fear, who comes now to accept the truth as Jesus revealed, opens the heart, the spirit comes in and brings all that Christ achieved to, to write on the tablets of the heart, you know, all those metaphors. How do you describe that? Paul, Paul and, and specifically, how would you describe it if you use this metaphor of Paul's? Don't you know that you are a temple of God and God's spirit dwells in you? If you're going to describe this experience of a person who's believing lies about God and living in fear and selfishness, being transformed with the truth and being renewed in heart in the metaphor of your temple, how would you, what would you say? say? Say that. I heard somebody say it. Cleanse. Cleansing the temple. Cleansing the temple. What, does that have anything to do with Daniel 8, 14 and to 2,300 years and then the temple will be cleansed? Is that related to, to this? Do you know the... Uh, the word in Hebrew translated cleansed, if you actually look it up in the, uh, in the Bible commentary, it'll tell you that it means to various, various meanings, but it means reconsecrate or set right or justify or put back right or re- restore it to a right state or to make it righteous. So 2300 days and the temple will be restored to a right state or made righteous. Hmm. What could this be referring to? Uh, could it be referring to refurbishing a building in heaven? A new paint job, getting out the old blood stains that have been trickling there for 6,000 years out of a building in heaven. Is it referring to changing the record books and erasing data out of a recording data device in heaven? Is that what it's referring to? 2300 days. Is referring to cleansing the hearts and minds of God's people. Well, one of the founders of our church who crafted our understanding of the sanctuary doctrine wrote these words. Great Controversy, page 426. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 8, 14. So we're not, and there's no equivocation here about what text we're referring to, Daniel 8, 14. And the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days as represented in Daniel 7, 13. And the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi 3, 1 through 3, quote, are descriptions of the same event. Did y'all know that? Three places, same event. Well, let's look at Daniel 7.13. Get some insight. Daniel 7.13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. 
All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. He, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Same event as Daniel 8.14. Wait a minute. What's being described? In the context of this passage, do you hear a judicial review going on? Text is describing, first, a coronation, is it not? A crowning. A time in the universe when God is on his throne and all the intelligences of the universe have gathered and Christ is brought to God's presence. And notice what happens when Christ is brought there. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Hmm. Now, how many languages do you think there are in heaven? Think it through. Prior to the Tower of Babel, how many languages were on earth? So how many languages do you think there are in heaven? One. So when it says... And men of every language. How many languages do you think we'll have in the earth made new? One. One. So when it says that peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him, is this talking about the angels in heaven worshipping him? Is this talking about the earth made new in the future worshipping him? No. This is talking about transpiring here on earth today that every nation, language, and people are come to worship. Daniel 8.14, something is going to get cleansed that's going to result in people all over the world worshiping God for who he is. In every language of the world. Isn't this exciting? Okay, This is very exciting, at least it is to me. So, would, it, would this not mean that it's this time in earth's history when the lies of God are being removed from the minds of men and we can see him as Christ really revealed him to be, and the superstitious false systems of belief are being removed from our minds, and we come to worship him again, who he really is. Isn't that what this is talking about? Well, let's see if we get more evidence for this. If we keep reading in Daniel 7, we keep the context flowing in Daniel 7, we're told that an evil power will arise, a little horn power, that is going to wage war against the saints until something happens. And that's, you find that in Daniel 7, 21 and 22. And it says, I watched this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. Notice, defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. I just read out of the NIV text. NIV is a very forensic legal view of looking at the Bible. Um, and, this, and this view is favored by those who believe that in heaven right now there's a courtroom scene going on, the records are reviewed, and God just pronounced a judgment. But, and because of that, they'll conclude that Revelation 14, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, is referring to a time when he sits in judgment. Rather than a time when he is being judged and we're determining whether he is someone we can trust or not. So, does the Bible give us further evidence to know which way this goes? Well, let's back up to, the, to ch- uh, chapter 7, verse 21, and ask, the ancient of days, it says, I watched this horn was waging war. What does the Bible tell us this war is about, or like? What kind of war is it? So, exactly, ideas. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war like the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against The knowledge of God. Notice we're battling over the knowledge of God. This is what the war is. The little horn is waging war and defeating the saints. Over what? A distorted concept of God. That's what they're defeating us with. We have divine weapons to destroy the strongholds of Satan and win back and cleanse the the mind. So we're to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. So first, we know this war is fought in our minds over the concepts over God. Second... These passages have something to do with cleansing the temple. And how might the temple be connected? Well, da- Daniel's describing a little horn power that wars against the saints. Paul describes the same power. And notice carefully what Paul says, what this little power does and where this power sets himself up. This is Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Concerning the coming of our Lord Christ and our being gathered to him, as we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man of doom and destruction. Who is this? Isn't that that little horn power? Same power. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, 
Is this little horn power, this little man of sin, after Christ's ascension into heaven, did he ride up on some, you know, cosmic uh, chariot and go up into heaven and throw Jesus off his throne in heaven and, and sit up and start trying to rule from the heavenly temple? Is that where he set himself up? Where did he set himself up? In this temple. That's right. That's what he's doing with distorted. So what is Daniel 7, 21 and 22 talking about, about the little horn waging war and defeating us until the ancient of days comes. This is Daniel 7, 22 out of the King James. Notice what it says in King James. Until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came for them to possess the kingdom. Notice, judgment given, the Hebrew actually means to impart. The little horn was waging war setting himself up in our minds with distorted ideas about God, he was defeating us until the time came that we were given discernment, judgment, the ability to tell the difference between the truth and the lies until enough truth had been recovered that we could free ourselves from the lies of this little horn power. And so, then we read that other text we were told, Malachi 3, 1 through 3, that describes the same event. The same event as Daniel eight fourteen. the same event as Daniel 7, 13, here's Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you desire will come. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and make them like gold and silver. Notice what gets cleansed at this period of time. Who are the Levites? The priesthood of believers. That's you and me. It's the people that are being cleansed. So, what do you think about this concept, this message? This goes back to to the difference between traditional evangelical theology and what we believe is going on. We believe that Christ achieved remedy, complete and free, without any human uh, um, assistance at the cross, remedy to sin. All that was necessary to heal and save mankind was achieved at the cross. We also believe, however, that there's an application through, the, through Christ. Um, he says, if, if I don't go, the Spirit won't come, and it's good. The Spirit comes, it'll take all its mind and make it known to you. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit applies to our lives what Christ has achieved. There's an application phase. Just like a doctor makes a remedy for disease, and then it has to be applied to the sick. We must partake of Jesus Christ and experience him. This is what we call the sanctuary doctrine. Do you understand? It's been twisted. It's been twisted. So, what objections, if we present this view, do you, do you think this view has merit? If we present this view to traditional Adventists, what objections are you likely to hear? Well, the, the number one, when you, when you talk about the sanctuary this way, the number one objection I get is this. So, you don't believe there's a real temple in heaven. It's the number one objection. You don't believe in a temple in heaven. And so how do you answer that? My answer, what, anyone answer? My answer is, with a question, I say, of course, I say, of course, absolutely, I believe in a real, physical temple in heaven. Question to you. If you use the Bible and inspired writings, out of what material is that temple built? And they're completely lost out in the, out in the wilderness. They're lost. Well, I don't know. You know, streets of gold, pearl, what? What's it made out of? Well, I said, if you use the Bible, let's use the Bible. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's house. What's another name for God's house? Temple, Temple or sanctuary, yes. Built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Or first Peter two, four and five. And Peter says, and this is what Peter says, and as you become, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Or, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, uh, 9 and 16. It says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then, I like this one. 
Revelation 3.12. Him who overcomes, this is God speaking too. He says, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him my name, the name of my city of my God, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So wait a minute. You mean if we're saved, we have to go up and we will never leave that physical building in heaven for all eternity. It becomes a prison house for us. Because it says right there, we'll be a pillar in the temple and we'll never leave it. Never. For all eternity? One place? Locked up? Wow. Or David in Psalms 23. How's, how's Psalms 23 end? I will dwell where? In the house of the Lord. For how long? Forever. Wow, another prison. <laughs> or unless we understand that we are ourselves are the temple where God dwells. We will never leave it because that's what the temple's built out of. We're the component building blocks. This was uh, written in, by the same founder who constructed our doctrines. Review and Herald, May 1, 1888. In order that we may become instruments fit for, the valuable, for val- valuable service, we must be prepared for our labor. We are as rough stones from the quarry, and we must be chiseled and hewn until God sees that the unsightly edges are taken off and we are fitted and polished for a place in the heavenly temple. Now that's kind of, people will say, I've I've presented this to some people, and they'll say, well, that's metaphorical. That's a nice picture image. But we're not to really be too serious about that, you know? So then I read. Because where this distortion comes from, it comes from looking at the Old Testament sanctuary, studying the Old Testament sanctuary, and then pigeonholing Jesus and the heavens into that. That's what happens. Rather than actually realizing this was just a little theater designed to teach us something. It's no different than, than uh, kindergarten when you go in and you got the little sandbox there and you got the little stick figures and things in the stand, sandbox the kids are doing and you say that somehow we should now take the world and make it fit into that. Yes? There's an interesting play on words in Exodus that says that God shows Moses a copy of the pattern. Right. A copy of the plans. So yes. The actual building or anything related to a physical structure that is given a copy. Makes sense? Anybody still sew in these, wor- in these days? Okay. When you go to sew, do you ever get a pattern? Is the pattern the dress? No. The pattern's not the dress, is it? No. It's the way to make the dress for the clothing. Yeah, it's just a diagram of the dress, right? So he was shown the pattern of the heavenly things. He wasn't shown the heavenly things, he was shown the pattern of the heavenly things what it says in in Exodus. Okay? All right. So for those who take this very concretely, that Old Testament system is what we have to look at. This is is what um, what Ellen White said in three manuscript releases, 231. And this one really silences a lot of the critics. The first tabernacle, built according to God's directions, was indeed blessed of him. The people thus were preparing themselves to worship in the temple not made with hands, a temple in the heavens, The stones of the temple built by Solomon were all prepared at the quarry and then brought to the temple site. They came together without the sound of axe or hammer. The timbers were also fitted in the forest. The furniture was likewise brought to the house all prepared for use. Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and is fitting this people who profess to be the children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work for us. We are taken from the quarry of the world. The material must not be a dead substance, but living souls. And these souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world where the hand of God can fit them for the temple in heaven. We are, he, we are here as probationers and we must pass under the hand of God. All rough, edge, rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed and We must be stones fitted for the building. We are brought into church capacity with defects of character, but we must not retain them. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers together with God, for we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. In view of this, we must see that our temple is not defiled with sin. Does this make sense to you? What do you think about this idea, this metaphor? Is it metaphor or is it literal? I believe there's a real physical building in heaven. I think we get a glimpse of it in the book of Job when all the sons of God gathered before him. 
And Satan came from walking to and fro on earth. I think this, this place where God dwells, this is why Satan wanted to ascend to the heights of the north. This is why Satan wants to sit himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Why? Because the temple is the loyalty, the heart devotion, the place where we give our affections. And God is to reside in that place. And that's why Satan wants to be there. Do you really think Satan walked into a physical building in heaven and said, Man, Lord, this, this, I love what you've done with the place. I mean, these, these curtains, and it's got all oh, the, the, the cathedral ceilings, I mean, and the gold. It's, this, is, this is a beautiful, awesome building, Lord. Um, hey, Lord, uh, you wouldn't mind if I had this building, would you? Now, the Lord that we know in Jesus would have said, what would he have said? No problem, I can build another one with a snap of a finger. This building makes you happy, have it, Right? No, he didn't want to be sitting on a throne in an empty building somewhere in the cosmos. He wanted to be sitting here, enthroned in the hearts and minds. This is the temple that we must cleanse. Um, questions about any of that? Have you ever heard this theory anyplace else? <laughs> yes, I have. Have you really? Yes. Okay, I've never heard it before, except here. Uh, I heard it from Ellen White. Well, yeah, but she didn't bring it all together like you did. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying, how can our theologians throughout our history have never come up with this theory before? Um, by the way, what do I always say? Don't believe anything because I say it. Study it for yourself. Check me out. Check the oven. See if the pieces fit. Does it make it sense? Much, it does. It makes too much sense <laughs> compared to what we've heard. Yes. When Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to die and the temple was going to be destroyed and he would raise it up in three days, he was talking about his physical body, right. not the building of the temple. Mm -hmm. right. So he's referring to Jerusalem was the people in it, not the city built of rocks. It was the people that dwelt there. Yeah, and you know, the, the people who take the other view will, will turn to some passages of Scripture, like in Hebrews, when it talks about um, the, the tabernacle. You know, w one of the ways we got this, this idea that we've got stuck in was because of the 1844 great disappointment of 2300 days and the sanctuary will be cleansed and, the, and it was misidentified as the earth and when Christ, and Christ was coming back and when that didn't happen. So they went through this l deductive reasoning. Well, um, the, the, in 1844, we know with time was right. Well, the earth wasn't the sanctuary. The Bible never teaches that. So what sanctuaries then does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible teaches the sanctuary of the Old Testament, which doesn't exist. And the Bible teaches the sanctuary in heaven. And so the Old Testament doesn't exist, then it must be the one in heaven that's being cleansed. They never considered, know ye not that ye are a temple of God? That was never considered in the entire discussion, theological exploration possibility that it was cleansing a people. It was never really brought in to that idea at that time or that the heavenly sanctuary was being constructed out of the people of God, and that's what the actual heavenly sanctuary is. But So they will read out of Hebrews, where Hebrews says um, that this is a temple not built with human hands. Right? Okay. Um, so I like to look in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 5. Yes, uh, a, a temple not built with human hands. This is 5, chapter 1, 2 Corinthians, it says, Now we know that if the earthly tent, the earthly tent... Uh, that we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an, an eternal house in heaven, not built with human hands. Whoa. What is that? What is that? Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with the heavenly dwelling because we were, uh, when we were clothed, we were not found naked. He's talking about our new eternal bodies. That's what he's talking about. Our new eternal bodies, not built with human hands. A dwelling place. And you destroy this temple. Three days I will be raised up again. Okay, yes, there's a real physical temple in heaven where Christ dwells, where God dwells in his spirit, and it will be made up of all God's reborn and renewed and eternally regenerated children. It's going to be awesome. At least that's how I understand it now. And if you, if you guys have more light, I mean, I don't suggest that this is the final word, guys, at all. I think we'll be studying and learning through all eternity. So if you have some more insight or light that can help refine this further, share it. Yeah. So anyway, um, I found that exciting as we studied this week. Um, Wednesday's lesson talks about Satan's fall, and we don't have time to go into it all, but look in um, Isaiah fourteen twelve through 15, and you'll see that Satan suggests or says six times self-promotion or self-exaltation. You said in your heart, I will ascend 
I will raise my thro- uh, my, myself, my throne uh, above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the house of God, the hup, uh, uh, mounts of them, the utmost heights of the, nor- the north, the sacred mountain. I will send above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So six steps up he tries to take. And the seventh step is, but you were brought down to the grave, the pits of the depth, depths. You know, it's promotion self, promotion self, promotion self, promotion self. And boom, down. Contrast that with Jesus. Remember the, the two, the two that were supposedly the, the Lucifers of heaven, the two light bearers, the two with the, with the same emeralds and rubies and sapphire uh, uh, things. One Lucifer is trying to promote himself higher and higher and higher, and he was brought down. Jesus, on the other hand, tells us in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, um, Jesus Christ who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, so stepping down, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in a human flesh, uh, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, so seven steps downward. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. Notice the different contrast. We have two different directions. We can be self-promoting, Satan's kingdom of self-exaltation, me first, or God's kingdom of self-sacrificial love, giving myself for others, which is the only way to live. And, 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 yes. I'm, my thoughts keep going to that there's two in the beginning who were supposed to represent God, and the two different pictures that they show of what, they, of what God is. And then at the end, the very end, there's two that are going to come back with two different pictures of God and building their kingdom based on that picture of God. Oh, I love that. In the beginning, two different pictures of Lucifer rebels and, and represents God in one way. Christ, we see, we just went through the contrast of the two systems. In the end, as the earth is coming to its final combination, Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons 4.15, the final message of mercy, the light in the world for Christ's coming, is the truth about God's character of love. And we have a, a, this, this whole lukewarm group is being divided into, into two camps, those who love God and others, it says in Revelation 12, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. This really regenerate love, other-centered heart versus that beast system. No one can buy or sell, say, who has the mark, coercive pressure and power. The whole world is coming into these two groups. This message that we have to take forward to the world frees people from the fear and distortions about God, allows their hearts to open to experience that renewal, that regeneration. And that's the message we want to take forward as a class. And uh, you should, you should. I don't know if I've given you updates, but we have friends that listen to us all over the world every week. We have friends in, in multiple countries in Europe. We have tw- 38 people every week that, that uh, participate and listen to us in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. We have, we have people in South Africa. We have people in Australia, New Zealand. Um, all over, this message is going out, and it's taken. I get emails back. I, I, get, I get people telling me how it's changing lives. Um, a few weeks ago when, when uh, Dr. Beats was here and gave uh, us some feedback, afterwards a young man came up to me uh, says he's from Chicago. And that every week uh, in their church and the, several of the churches around that they share this message in their church every week. Got an email from somebody this week out of Oregon and they said that this message is taking off out in Oregon. So uh, we may feel a little isolated here. This message is lighting the world and that's, and that's what we want to take forward and keep promoting. So, yes. Just going back to the 1844, the cleansing of the sanctuary. Oh, what sanctuary then? I mean... How can we explain that? Cleansing our hearts? Yes, it's cleansing our hearts and minds. But is it's, there a deadline for that? Or a dead beginning of that? My understanding is that in Daniel 8.14, Christ gives a prophecy uh, to, to the prophet Daniel. Looking down the corridors of time, he, remember the, the 2300 years, the 490 were, were, were established for the, for the Jewish people. And it says 490 years until the Messiah will come. Okay? And then he prophesies there'll be a counterattack. We met, read about the counterattack, that after Messiah comes to do what's necessary for salvation, Satan counterattacks with distortions and twists and lies, wars against the saints, fills our minds with a, we're, we're, all, we're all confused and darkened and, and, and dying, he's defeating us. And he's looking down, it's going to be 2,300 years until enough truth is recovered to cleanse the sanctuary from all that lies that's been told so he can then reconcile us and restore us back into harmony with him. So 1844 began that process. It could have already finished, except this is the last day, and Satan is like a roaring lion, furious, seeking who may devour, and he's ratcheted up his war, end-time war game to try and delay and delay and delay, but it could have already happened if we, if we would have done our job as a church and a people. 
Yes. Isn't this the Battle of Armageddon? Yes, I actually do believe that the Battle of Armageddon is a worldwide battle for the hearts and minds of all people. That's what it's about. And, and one of the distortions, one of the, you know, a magician or an illusionist or a good con man always has what? Diversion. A diversion. Always has a diversion. Always has something to you know, flash you over here, you're paying your attention to, while he's doing whatever it is he doesn't want you to notice. I think that in, co- in common Christian circles, the great diversion is the Middle East. Literal Israel. And this belief that literal physical Israel will be anything of significance at the end of time uh, is a great giant diversion, which will get everybody to look at while he then fills their minds with distortions because it's really about the nature and character of God. This is what we war against, the lies that were told about God. It's all through Scripture. And then the Jewish people were called by God to prepare the world for his first coming, where the, the, the church of God are called to prepare the world for his second coming. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us in darkness, that you have sent your spirit to finish the work in our hearts and minds, to, to, um, to bring the remedy that you achieved 2,000 years ago. And we know that the devil is working hard to, to make us misunderstand, to distort, and to twist, and to bend. Lord, we ask that you will empower us with your spirit to have discernment, to have wisdom, to have good judgment, to have the capacity to wield the sword of the spirit, the sword of truth, in our own hearts with your grace, and also to be agents and representatives of your kingdom, that we can go out and speak truth in clear words and loving words that can help set all their hearts and minds free. May this message go forward. May the world be lightened. And may we see you soon, Lord. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.